developers understand, but a lot of the investors and so forth don't, is the tax equity part of the capital stack. A lot of people don't know how to monetize that. And if you can't monetize that, then obviously you're not going to get your projects financed. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited in this episode of the podcast to interview Jim Spano and Mark Settles with Solreit. Jim Spano is the co-founder and head of Virgin Nations at Solreit, and Mark is the CEO of Solreit. Solreit is able to offer long-term fixed-rate debt that matches the operational life of an asset at a lower cost of capital than their competitors. Jim's background is that he's played a key role in the development of projects totaling over 400 megawatts in solar generation facilities. Through his leadership, Spano Partners Holding Companies, funding joint venture partner of Solreed, has become recognized as one of the top privately owned utility scale and commercial industrial solar energy developers and financiers in New Jersey. Mark's background before Solreed, he served as an executive coach for senior managers and senior executives for J.P. Morgan Chase for over 20 years. In his highest profile of the bank, he reported directly to J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon as the firm's managing director and diversity recruiting executive. In that role, Mark helped the firm find and develop women and ethnic minorities for senior positions at the bank. Throughout his banking career, Mark served as head of various fixed income market product teams and a specialist in central bank and sovereign reserves management. I interviewed Jim before on the Solar Maverick podcast, which was a great interview. It was episode 13, how to develop a great solar project and many other interesting topics about solar and entrepreneurship. I will also have the link to that podcast on the notes of the podcast. There's a lot of interesting topics that Jim and Mark talk about. Some of them is how they're offering innovative financing to help developers own projects. Also, how they will assist with tax equity financing and how they're able to finance energy storage because energy storage has been very challenging to date to finance. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have Jim Spano and Mark Settles. They're from Soul Read. And I'm excited to have you, Jim, back on the podcast, episode nine. And now we've had about 110 episodes. I really appreciate you supporting the podcast, especially when we're just trying to get established. So I really appreciate your support, your thought leadership in the solar industry. And one of the original Solar Mavericks. Been in the industry now for how long? Since 2004. That's a long time. I mean... Prior to commercial application of solar, we were using it as a marketing tool when we first started the solar and the solar business. We were actually in the real estate business using solar as a marketing tool to provide all green power to the first mall in the United States. And it's interesting because you went into a lot more detail. If you listen to episode nine of the Solar Maverick podcast with Jim Spano, he talks about that. And it would be interesting actually for our audience to learn about SolarEat. In the beginning of the podcast, we give a brief description, but I think it would be really helpful to get more of a detailed explanation of SolReed and what you're focused on. Sure, sure. SolReed is a lending platform that's designed to eliminate the capital constraints so that developers can take their projects past the traditional NTP sale point and take it all the way through to COD and asset ownership, long-term ownership, if that's their desire, essentially enabling them to capture the entire value chain that they create in the development process rather than passing it up to the capital providers or the equity partners that are typically associated with developers in this industry. That's a simple, concise definition. And I think that there's a huge need in the industry. A lot of the development community wants to own assets. It's extremely complicated. And you being, as we talked about in the before in the pre-interview, more of a partner than a lending institution, can you talk about the value that you're adding and how it might be different from other products out there? We significantly distinguish ourselves in that we're not bankers. Do we have bankers on our staff? <laughs> yeah, we need a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but really what we are are solo developers that understand the business, the process of developing projects, to be truly understand the risk associated with the asset class. So we have a very different underwriting view of a solar asset than a traditional bank would. Beyond that, we also have a very different view on the long-term constructed asset. So 
Let me look at the two phases. During construction, we recognize the value that a developer has created by getting a project shovel-ready or at that notice-to-proceed point. By creating that value and recognizing that value and understanding the true risks of constructing a solar system and having the proper oversight and controls over it, we're able to work with the developer to enable that developer to fund 100% of the cost to construct the project enabling him to actually get the project through the COD without any further capital out of his pocket once he's got it to NTP. And when I say that, I mean zero capital. Now, that's the basis of what enables a developer to have access to that long-term ownership model that they haven't been able to access in the past. And as a result, they sold to long-term aggregators who were able to access it. Where we differ significantly than the traditional lender that maybe you can get a construction lender and a mini perm lender that can give you some term debt and they'll loan you most or maybe 50, 60% of the cost to construct and they'll give you a 50 to 65% loan to value on the long-term ownership. We come in and we take a significant amount more risk during construction than a bank would, but it's because we understand that risk. And by being able to manage the risk, whereas a bank and bankers can't. As developers, we're able to manage that risk to the point where we can help that developer get that project constructed. Now, once it's constructed, what we ask for is the long-term debt. That's the business we're in. We want to provide the long-term debt. So we're going to take a hell of a lot of risk during the construction cycle, but mitigated risk, controlled risk. But from a banker's perspective, we take a hell of a lot of risk for that short three to six month construction period. Once we enable that developer to do that, we share with that developer in the value, but unlike an equity investor who takes the vast majority of the value and leaves the developer with that NTP sale, or if you have an equity partner, like one of the large firms, I won't name any names, but we all know who they are, (laughs) and they love to partner with you, and you get paid this and they get paid that, and (laughs) people can't see, but the this and the that were significantly different. Understanding that equity partner is taking equity risk and expects to get paid an equity return. We're taking debt risk. So we're coming in, we're being that same partner. In fact, we're a value-add partner. But instead of capturing the equity and taking the value from the developer, we're enabling the developer to capture that value for themselves. Our interest rate will be a little bit higher, and it needs to be. We're not charging any upfront charges. So when you take out the loan, you're not paying the legal fees. You're not paying the independent engineer reports or any of the due diligence expenses. We provide the construction and the term debt in a melded. So it's a single rate for the entire period. We're giving long-term debt. So unlike the mini perm seven to 10-year tenor, we're giving that 20 to 25-year tenor. Matching the PPA. So the, the rate reflects that. But really what we've done, and every developer I've challenged, compare even your own finance method, whether you have an equity partner, whether you're financing with a small local bank at lower interest rates, but compare your overall cost of capital. Don't look at the interest rate. Look at what your cost of capital is from inception to end. When somebody comes in and enables you to have long-term ownership without putting any capital out, you're going to expect that they're going to take a little bit more risk and you're going to have to pay a little bit more for that. But without that, you don't have the ability to get that project to anywhere past NTP. Now, what people need to understand is our value after NTP at COD is at least two, two and a half times. So for that three to six month additional period, you spend a year, two years developing a project, you get paid a dollar. You spend another three to six months getting constructed and you get paid two, two and a half dollars. Makes a lot more sense to get that project all the way through. Now, beyond the actual value of the cost of capital, the real value add that we provide is, as every developer knows, you may have tremendous experience in the development process. You may have tremendous experience in the construction process. You may have tremendous experience in the finance process. But trying to meld those three in the most efficient manner so that we're providing low-cost capital with the resources that will enable you to take your project from cradle to grave, from NTP, well, you've taken it actually as a developer from inception through NTP, through COD, through the life of the asset. Any period during that stage, we all like to think as developers of the point from NTP to COD, and that's where the major risk is from a construction perspective. So we all think that that's really the risk. And once it's built, we've got smooth sailing. 
Well, even some of the KW Analytics reports lately say, hey, wait a second, that smooth sailing is a little bumpy. You have a company like Solreet that can come in and the resources that our principals have, being some of the top experts in the solar industry, we're able to access resources. We're able to access hedges. We're able to do things that a traditional bank would call in your loan on. Instead, we come in, we support you. So we're the equivalent of that equity partner. And that's why I said we're really a value-add because we're the equivalent of that big firm equity partner that a lot of these developers in EPC sell to. We're their equivalent. However, we leave the value downstream. We don't capture all the value on the capital side. So our cost of capital is very low. Our interest rates higher the market, but our cost of capital is extremely low. And that's what we have to look at when we're evaluating the value going from taking a project past the NTP and just walking away versus saying, okay, there's a lot more value I've created. How do I go further upstream and capture that value that I've been giving away? Never before have you been able to do that. There's no construction company out there. I don't care. You can challenge me. I'll sit here all day. There's not a construction company in this country that will loan you 100 plus percent to construct your solar system. We're the only game out there. Now, will there be in the future? Absolutely. We've set a model that is clearly a scalable and replicable model. So I'm sure that we'll have plenty of competition in the future. Right now, our developers have an opportunity today to do what other people will be thinking about in the future. And that's what we're looking to do for the market. We're more than a lender. We're your partner. Yeah, that's exciting to hear about. And there's so many interesting points that you talked about. And, you know, just making a seamless product, right? Going from NTP to COD to ownership, it's challenging for a developer because they have to talk to multiple parties and you're basically streamlining. And as you mentioned, like cost of capital is huge. And then adding that value that an equity partner does, I think there's so many great benefits. And I don't know of a product like this. And I know, you know, Jim and your team has been working a long time to try to come up with this solution. As we talked about too on episode nine, it's really about the soft cost and lowering the soft costs. And this is really a focus on lowering finance and costs. So it's really interesting and very innovative. So I appreciate you going into detail and explaining that because I think a lot of developers could relate. The other thing too, which you mentioned, developers usually are cash strapped. So you're talking about they would rather use that capital to invest in newer projects than you know on the financing related to the projects. And that's why they sell at NTP because sure. they could recycle their cash that's quicker, right. but this gives them the opportunity. I have some of the larger EPCs and developers around the country now looking to set up programs with us where EPCs are going to be offering our financing to developers. What does that do? One, it gives absolute certainty to the EPC that they're going to get paid. So if they get two months into it and the developer has a problem and they have an EPC contract problem, we eliminate that. So we're looking to partner with those EPCs. And what's really interesting is an EPC that's also a developer, they're our best friends. Oh, of course. Think about what we can do with those guys. One of the problems that every EPC has and every developer has is cash flow, right? We're always making deposits on equipment. We don't get revenue for a long time from when I make that deposit. So we're always capital constrained by coming in and eliminating that constraint. Not only are these EPCs able to be certain that they're going to get paid, but they can get paid on the schedule that fits their businesses best. For example, if I'm the developer, the EPC, and the owner, the owner gets the loan, developer gets paid, EPC gets paid, you, the owner, who's both the EPC and the developer, you get to decide, well, how much do I want into fees? How much do I want into my EPC company? I need bonding requirements. Maybe I need to put a little bit more on my EPC company. Or my development company needs capital because we're going to be doing this next project and have some large capital expenses come up. Let's move some of that. So as a EPC developer and long-term owner, you can move the cash flows and the values where you need it to meet your overall business needs, even more so than a developer. I have a lot of these EPCs that want to be owners that are now working with developers and saying, I'll buy the project from instead of going to the aggregator, I'll pay you what that aggregator was going to pay because now I can actually afford to do what that aggregator was doing because I capture that entire value stream now. I think there's a tremendous opportunity today for developers and EPC companies to start working together in their mutual interest as opposed to the interest of the aggregators that have been taken advantage of both from the time that I started this business. Going back to what you said about 100% of the loan amount, you never hear that in the industry. That's huge. And then 
developers are seeing basically fully baked operational projects being flipped. They're losing a lot of value. So this is like a huge opportunity. If you look at it, that's exactly what the industry does. The developer develops the project and establishes the value. He sells to the aggravator who captures a ton of that value, builds it because he has the capital to build it. Then when he gets a big enough portfolio, he flips it to a third party. Now, look at all the value during that whole process when there's enough value to have it sold two or three times. If you can capture that entire value stream from inception as a developer, is that the holy grail of solar? It definitely is. And you're really creating a product that's really needed in the industry. And I know we spoke about this on episode you know, nine in the Solar Reap. What do you think has changed from you coming with the idea and talking about it to now where you are with Solar Reap? Can you talk about what's changed? Sure. To sit here and go through this concept, it makes all the sense in the world to a developer. It makes all the sense in the world to an asset owner. But to bankers? <laughs> yes, that's another story. Okay, so we spent a fortune on a predecessor company in developing the actual product itself and trying to take it out to market. But raising that capital became a major obstacle to the success of the predecessor company. What differs today is we brought a team together that has the read experience, that has the investor outreach. The product itself makes all the sense in the world. The ability to overcome the risk that we're taking during construction, it takes us a educated investor to understand how that risk is mitigated and why it's really not risk. And what we show our investors is that mitigated risk that we're controlling for you during that construction process, during that monthly period, yields a long-term loan valuation that's at 45, 50, 55%. So they have long-term 20, 30-year secure loans by taking a three to six month mitigated risk. And from the developer, the now the new owner's perspective, while they have a low LTV, what that means is they have low debt service coverage. So if you have a low DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, what that means is there's lots of cash flow. And if you think about it logically, if I'm amortizing like a traditional mini perm loan does in our industry, if you're advertising a solar system that has a 25 year PPA, You get a seven-year fixed interest and a 10-year amortization schedule. Well, you having to take that dollar and you're going to pay 10 cents a year for 10 years toward the debt service without the interest. Now, you extend that to 20 years. Now it's half. That means that other half is available for cash flow to the owner. So now what we look at is we look at all that net cash flow and say, what's the present value of that? It's going to be three plus times what you would have earned if you just sold it out at NTP. Yeah, I think that's what makes you more comfortable with like, do you take uncontracted PPA risk outside or rec risk? Now here, as we know, if you go to a traditional bank lender and you don't have contracted revenue, they're smiling yeah. And they're saying, okay, what other collateral do you have? Right? <laughs> yes, that's a, that's that's what a normal face. answer response, yes, from the bank. We, being solar developers, knowing the markets, having that broad experience, we know that we can contract and we can hedge and we can mitigate that risk. We can help the developer mitigate the risk. So instead of having contracted revenue, he has insured or hedged revenue that is now contractable. Now we can work with that developer and determine how much he needs to hedge and how much he can take market risk on and still meet our lower debt service coverage ratio. If, for example, take an SREC market where you have a merchant SREC. Now, New Jersey, we know just fixed it, but we still have markets like Massachusetts and Washington that had have SRECs. Well, if I'm going to look at the future value of these SRECs, even some of the community solar sites, if I have to look at the future value of these SRECs, as a solar developer, I know what the markets are. I know how the forward curves are. I'm comfortable valuing them very different valuation than a bank would. A bank would look and say, look, if it's not contracted, it's worth zero. Yes. We have New Jersey SREX that are now at $200 that were valued at $25 when I did my original performance. So it's important to understand that. And then when it comes to particularly community solar, which is going to be a major, and I think Mark's going to speak about that, community solar is a major aspect of our business. It's a major aspect of the solar industry. That's where most of our projects are going to be community solar type projects. Every state's coming out with legislation. So understanding that every state has different legislation, every state has different programs. Some are merchant, some are fixed, some are backstopped by the utility, some are opt-in, opt-out, easy to refill subscriptions. We have all these different things that affect the community solar project. Well, go to a bank 
and say, I got five projects, one in Maine, one in Washington, one in New Forget it. Yeah, it's definitely not. Come to us. We got something to talk about. See, so it's understanding the market helps us to value very differently than a bank. A bank is just looking at who's your off taker, what's their investment credit rating, and how much revenue are you getting from them? That's it. Maybe you can convince them to give you some residual value. <laughs> yeah. You know, I got I got a 25-year lease and a 20-year PPA. You know, can you, you know, maybe <laughs> add a little value for that last five years and give for me a few sure. pennies? Sure, for a few more deposits, a few more million yeah, right. dollars. <laughs> yes, that's the thing. A million dollars in deposits, like, that'll work out. There's strings attached to it where it sounds like you're a lot more flexible capital. You understand the risk more than a bank is. And usually what we've seen is banks take a longer time to get comfortable and there's always some sort of string attached to it. So, And I think it's huge as the market becomes more merchant that people who are lenders are able to see the value as a developer would be and are able to offer better loans is a huge like competitive advantage. And as you mentioned, community solar, you know, you have a combination of residential offtakes. Now a lot of the states are also promoting LMI as well. So like how does the lender get comfortable with that? And I think that's here, let's talk about that for a second, because that's a really keen point. When you have like in New Jersey where there's an LMI requirement, and a lot of states are doing that. I'm trying to get social justice. When you have those type of programs, the credit risk becomes the inhibitor to getting financing. However, when you understand how subscription companies work, when you've interviewed seven, 10 subscription companies, when you're comfortable with the oversubscription, what each subscription carrier, how they backstop and fulfill replacements, how they oversubscribe and underfill the subscription so that they have capacity left. We understand that. So when we underwrite a community solar project, we have a very different view than a bank who's looking and saying, who are all these people with 600 FICO scores and how am I going <laughs> to finance against them? I don't care if they got 300 FICO scores. If I have a subscription company that's guaranteeing a replacement and whatever their margin is, if they're guaranteeing me a 98 or a 95%, I'll use that revenue number and I'll bank on it. Whereas a bank ain't going to do that. And that's a great point of what you just mentioned is really like the banks are looking at kind of like absolute where you're really getting into the details and weeds and understanding because it also is like how much of the waitlisted LMI customers at the acquisition company. Also too, it takes maybe one to two quarters before you could actually still use the credit or even a year. So that would be technically like diffuse the lending situation, but they might not necessarily know that. Also another thing too that's interesting is like a lot of LMI customers don't want people to know that they're LMI. So you can't really do a credit check. So then how do you like get comfortable with that? Because that's something that only really a non-traditional lender would be comfortable looking at it from that perspective. So you know what you find is like in New Jersey recently, and a lot of your audience knows that's my home state, they had a different approach to how you determine if people are LMI because they know that people aren't going to say, yeah, I'm low income. What they do is they establish by communities. If certain percentage of a community has what's called an overburdened population, then anybody in that community is considered LMI. That's a way that you can still address it. And when you have it on a communal basis like that, which is what community solely is supposed to be, then it's much easier to underwrite that risk. Now, traditionally with power, that risk is turned over to the utility. They take that risk. If you don't pay, they eat it. But they get rate-based, so they get reimbursed. We don't get reimbursed. So it's really important that you have a good subscription company. Those are the kind of things that we understand it. We know who the players are. We know who the fakers are. Bank doesn't know that. A bank is not going to put any confidence in any subscription company until they've been around for 10, 20 years. There ain't going to be any around for 10 or 20 years until we're in business 10 or 20 years with community yeah. solar. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And it's all community solar is relatively new. So it's amazing too. Like even it took the while for the banks to get comfortable with just residential offtake. They were in the beginning four or five years ago looking for like 20 year residential PPAs, <laughs> which is pretty crazy for a residential customer to get. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it's not on your roof. So that's pretty interesting to hear and pretty creative. It would be great, Mark, to understand like your background, how you got involved in SolReit. You know, you and Jim partnered together. I know Jim, you're technically the founder and head of originations. Mark, you're the CEO. And it's interesting too, because you need a lot of different backgrounds, I feel like, Absolutely. to be successful. And I know we we're talking about this in the pre-interview. And you actually mentioned it as Jim, like the type of backgrounds you need to make the successful organization. Can you talk about 
Oh, yeah. You're only as good as your talent and your technology. So <laughs> I spend 25 hours a day thinking about the team that we're building, making sure that we have the proper talent and technology aligned against our business priorities. One of those business priorities is indeed community solar. I'll come back to that. But my background is in fixed income, just under 20 years, JP Morgan, asset management, fixed income and diversity. So I would not normally bring that up, but I'm going to bring it up in the spirit of community solar on the fixed income side, all portfolio management. And so I'm all about risk management, internal controls. <laughs> and, that, and they probably forgot to ask me my last board seat. I was on a uh, SEC regulated credit rating agency on, oh, wow. on their board and their cash flows were primarily securitized cash flows. And my entire job was to be an advocate on behalf of our shareholders, but it was all internal controls and risk management. So I think they forgot to ask me that. I met Kevin Adler for the first time. He was all excited. How are you going to grow the company? How are you going to scale the company? How are we going to get to a billion dollars in AUM? And I looked at him and I said, strong and transparent internal controls. <laughs> it diffused everything. Yes. The party, the music stopped. <laughs> it's not the sexy answer he wanted to hear, but you need somebody focused on that. Oh, definitely. Um, so sure. my fixed income background at J.P. Morgan, I've also had experience in the executive suite at Fannie Mae and at J.P. Morgan. And so had to conduct business and that level. And it was exciting. I talked to people when I coached them about network equity and building up network equity. And that exposure definitely did give me an opportunity to build up some pretty strong network equity, which I'm tapping into now to help us get going. On the diversity side, I'd never been on any fraternities or any clubs. My thing is basketball is all through high school and college. And so I never really got into any diversity type of clubs or things like that. But I was asked by our chairman and CEO at J.P. Morgan to help him increase the amount of women and ethnic minorities at the managing director level in our firm. Very small percentage, the owners, the owners, think about partners level at our firm, thinking, why did he ask me to do that? I buy low, sell, <laughs> buy low, sell high, I go home, yeah. give me my dog on bonus at the end of the year, no hugs and kisses, no EQ, <laughs> you just get it done. And why did he ask me to do it? And I think that's exactly the reason he asked me to do it. So we hired more women and I think minority managing directors than in the history of the firm, so much so that he put it into the annual report. And the University of Virginia Darden School of Business wrote a case study about what did you and Jamie see as a challenge? What strategy did you put together? Because an empty room like this, I hadn't know what the hell I was doing. What strategy did you put together to execute on? And what were the results? What did you guys agree a good result would look like? And so they still teach it at the Darden School. So I go down once a year as protagonist and talk about it because everybody doesn't see it as a problem, the demographics as a problem. So that's another interesting perspective. So here I am in solar, right? <laughs> I've become the founding CEO this summer and I meet a guy named Jim Spano. I drive out to his house. I thought I was driving all the way to the West Coast. <laughs> it was only a few hours into Jersey. And I see a wonderful opportunity to democratize access to clean energy for those that are most often affected by climate change. We are using this platform, again, to democratize access to clean energy for those that are most often affected by climate change, but not just urban areas, but also rural, urban and rural. It's resiliency. We have a fantastic opportunity with this platform and it's underway. So also on the side of diversity, we were successful in building a diverse board of directors. Our independent directors are diverse. We think about that in everything that we do. We just think that a heterogeneous set of ideas will outperform a homogeneous set of ideas every day. And so we're excited about that. And it's good to be a part of the team. You know, having a diverse board and diverse team, which you have and skill sets, not just with, you know, diverse as far as like ethnicity, that it really adds value. And just even hear your background, compared to Jim's background in fixed income and with credit ratings and then building a diverse team. And then Absolutely. also you're raising capital as well for SolarEat, your relationships within the banking community and the institutions. Yeah, really complimentary backgrounds. And I'm sure since Jim had that idea a few years ago, he's been thinking about what's the right combination of folks to put together at the table. It would be fantastic, or you'd think it would be fantastic to have a bunch of solar renewable energy people at the table. It's not necessarily true. In our case, you need renewable, absolutely. But you need technology folks, you need real estate people. You need fixed income people who understand what is a REIT structure, right? As an investment vehicle, that's my whole background is fixed income and understanding the right different types of, not the right, different types of <laughs> investment vehicles is what I call it. It's an investment vehicle, right? And being able to talk to both sides of the shop, both the investors, 
I've got to be able to communicate with the investors and talk about the investment vehicle, but I've also got to be able to communicate to people who are going through a client experience with us. The whole roadmap from application to underwriting and getting into the loan portfolio. And so you really need a diverse group of folks on the management team. Definitely, especially when you're going from NTP to then operation of a project that will last 25, 30 years that you're providing a debt product. And it's interesting as well. What I was thinking too was about how to mitigate risk, making sure that you're not taking you know risky loans if it is that you're comfortable with that. And your background, I'm sure, you know, adds a lot of value to that. As well as our chief investment officer. He's fantastic. His background in solar, his background in credit ratings at Moody's. We are diligent diligent about the portfolio construction and risk management around it. It's exciting. We're fiduciaries. At the end of the day, we're fiduciaries. So we've got to get that right. See, a lot of people don't realize behind the scenes, you know, I sit out here and I have the easy job. I get to (laughs) hang out with my friends and talk solar. So that's great. But behind me, there's so much going on. People have to understand that there's an entire loan platform that had to be set up. You know, we're issuing mortgages. If you've ever gotten a mortgage, you know the stack of papers that come with those loan docs. So you have all those legal requirements. Then you have, as Mark was pointing out, technology. You can't succeed processing billions of dollars of loans manually. You have to have the right technologies going through from client contact all the way through to closing a loan. There's so many steps and so many people. You need client service representatives. You have analysts that have to analyze the projects. You have processing people that have to go from the application through the diligence process to get a loan approved. You have committees or investment committees that have to, group has to do a ton of the underwriting department has to do their work before the credit group can review the credit side of it. So. Behind me, there's a huge infrastructure, literally dozens of people that, and functions that have to be accomplished in order for me to say to that developer, we can make a loan. <laughs> yeah. you know, I get the easy part. We can make a loan. Right? <laughs> How does it happen? Yeah, for sure. The complexity. <laughs> Money going you know, for investors. And then we have to leverage our investor money in order to give them good returns so that we could be competitive into the market. You really have to look at the entire process and recognize that when you're building a multi-billion dollar business, you're not doing it with your buddies. You're doing it with people that cumulatively can create first the management team that can then hire and assign all of the underlying jobs that need to be accomplished in order for us to actually make that loan. And that's where a guy like Mark, with his experience, recognizing, and this is where I'm the worst, and I think everybody pretty much knows this already, but managing people, forget it. I don't have the patience. It takes a certain type of person to do each function within the company. Yeah. My function, I'm responsible for going out and making sure the industry understands the value proposition we offer. Mark's responsibility is to run the day-to-day operations of the company and to make sure that everything is functioning the way that it should and as efficiently as it can. And you can go all the way down the line. We all have specific functions that cumulatively enable us to bring this product to the market in a competitive fashion that ultimately enables all of us to increase the amount of solar that's being built, decrease the amount of fossil fuel that's needed in order to decrease the impact of climate change that we're all experiencing. So it's really a group effort that goes well beyond my little team or my team partnering with developers This is a community, this is a national and international need, and SolRead is just enabling that need to be facilitated on an exponentially increased basis. We're significantly decreasing the time from when a solar developer gets site control of a property to the time that a solar system is built on that property. That's our goal. If we could decrease that time and get that much more solar built, we'll have that much of a greater impact on climate change. Yeah, that is huge value in the industry. I mean, to be able to lower that time and the friction too, right? Because there's so much friction that's involved in it that it, everything takes a lot longer. And if you're able to expedite the process and something too that I'm sure you're thinking about as the industry keeps growing exponentially to scale, you need technology, not just to go through your different processes, but just as well, the interaction with the customers. You know, customers. Right. Absolutely. So that's really amazing. You know, another hear. thing that we... Developers understand, but a lot of the investors and so forth don't, is the tax equity part of the capital stack. A lot of people don't know how to monetize that. And if you can't monetize that, then obviously you're not going to get your projects financed. 
That's one of the values and one of the other areas where Sol Re distinguishes itself from the traditional lender. We'll arrange. We don't issue the tax equity. We're not the counterparty to the tax equity contract. But we certainly have the relationships and agreements with tax equity funds and partners that we will arrange the tax equity for the investor. There's not a bank out there that's going to do that. No, definitely not. Typically, you're going to have to pay somebody else to get that tax partner to you, and you're going to spend a small fortune negotiating and so forth. Our ultimate goal is to have a standardized tax equity documents that all of our tax equity investors would go for. Now, that may change with the new laws if we get you know, the cash payments. That may change completely. In fact, that would facilitate a much smoother process for everybody and significantly increase the amount of solar and renewables that can be built because you're not having to take part of the value that you've created as a developer and pass it off to that tax equity investor. <laughs> sure. You get to capture it yourself with a cash grab. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 yeah and that's a huge thing as a developer because i think that's the most complicated part of the ownership equation is them sourcing the tax equity them being comfortable. And if it's direct pay. And another great point that you mentioned in the pre-interview that your loan product is willing to pay 100%. I think people, when they think of direct pay, they think they're getting the cash immediately. Right. But there's going to be a lag time. And now that they're doing it through the IRS, right? And at a minimum, you're not going to get it till after it's built. So you have to find the money up front and the bank ain't going to loan it to you. (laughs) You know, one of the interesting things with tax equity as well is how much of the time does a solar developer spend not only trying to get his project financed or find a buyer that can buy it. It's virtually impossible for a developer to find the tax equity investor, find the lender, develop his projects. You know, small, medium-sized developers, we can't do that. We need people like Sol Reed that are going to come partner with us. In fact, if you really want to call us anything, call us your structured finance partner. We're your outsourced structured finance department. You don't need anybody else. You don't need to pay it. You focus on giving me five more projects. Let me get them financed for you. Yeah, definitely. And most mid-sized developers, they don't really have like a project finance expertise. No. So, so it takes them five times as long to get each project financed. Partner with us, that's our goal, is to enable you to build your business so that you can focus on getting new projects to develop and not focus on trying to get them financed or sold. That's a huge value add. And obviously, that's really interesting to hear about how you're willing to like partner on all the different aspects of the capital, even though you're involved in the debt piece. But it's all interrelated. And obviously, the documents, and if you're able to create sort of uniform structure with tax equity, that simplifies you know, the transaction, and I guess, hurdles or so friction. That's our is goal great. is to eliminate And I'm going to say this again, eliminate the capital constraints that have prevented people like me, developers, from capturing our value. I got to tell you, my first projects, again, without mentioning names, the first utility projects in New Jersey I developed, the ability to develop those projects and get paid at NTP, we thought was phenomenal. I mean, we made mint. We did great. We were excited. And then we learned five years later that that fund that bought those assets from us gave a, after their fees gave a 37% year-on-year return to their investor. And I said, how much value did I walk away from from. that enabled them to give that kind of return? You take 37% year-on-year compounded for five years. That's the value that that I walked away from. That should have been a 9 or a 10%. And that other 17% compounded, that should have been fees. And in fact, had the product like Soul Reap been around, my Lord, I'd have owned that entire capitals, that entire value stream I would have captured. Huge, 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 huge difference. And that's quite frankly what motivated me to go from being, which obviously I still develop, 
But to go from being just a developer to being a financier, Mm -hmm. I mean, my prior career was in finance. And after I saw the struggles that I had, if everybody remembers, when I started in this business, projects were a dime a dozen. You could find projects all day long. You couldn't get the capital. When we saw that now the capital is the constraint, that's when I, the sole REIT model that was predecessor company, that's when that model began to percolate in my mind. Say, How do we resolve this? I'm a developer. I'm getting crushed. How do I change this? How do I make this more equitable so that the people that are creating the value are actually getting to capture some of it or more of it? So I think that today developers are in a unique position, particularly with all of the legislation and all of the support for our industry, all the opportunities. And by lowering the cost of capital, by enabling the developer, think of how many projects that can get built now that couldn't get built before. Because by the time you got done going from the developer to the EPC, to the aggregator, to the long-term owner... By the time you get all through that, the value is already you know, disintegrated, disintegrated yes. it's gone. So I think that our approach enables projects that couldn't have met the financial requirements of that capital grab along that stream, they can now get built. So since there's not three or four people upstream trying to capture some value, the developer himself can say, okay, now I can make this project pencil with the amount of revenue that's available and the cost to construct that I can build it at today versus a year ago. So a lot of my developers are looking at projects that they walked away from and saying, oh, wait a minute. I couldn't develop them enough to sell them and get any real value for the risk that I take. But to own them, hmm, that's a different story. You know, now for the amount of risk I take, I can get a real return for my risk. Now maybe I should be looking at those old projects that I walked away from. That's such a great point because like there's so many projects that, as you mentioned, there are people taking fees along the way that then hurts the profitability that then makes the project not pencil. But if the developer is able to control it from the outset, that's a huge differentiator and it will allow more projects to to get get built. built. And that is is the goal. If we're going to reduce the impact of climate change, we have to eliminate the constraints that have prevented us from infrastructure. We have a $2 trillion infrastructure bill. With that capital, we can start to have an impact on climate change. Without it, it's not going to happen because there's no one individual that's going to say, I got a kick out of uh, recently that Elon Musk was challenged. I think the World Health Organization or whatever challenged him and said, if he just gave up 10% or 2% of his net worth, whatever the number was, that we could cure world hunger. Okay, but I'll sell $6 billion worth of Tesla stock. And you show me where every penny's going to go and how it's going to solve world hunger and I'll do it. That's a pretty interesting challenge. What we're doing is we're going out to the market and we're saying, look, we'll give you the money. We'll enable you. We're making that challenge to you. You want to address climate change, but you don't have the money? You're not Elon Musk? Let us give you the money. Let me be your Elon Musk. But I think that's huge because really developers are cash constrained and this really creates an opportunity because if you really think like the real value is really developing these projects, there's so much capital out there but it's really smart capital that could partner with the developer. And it's hard to find good projects, as you know. Now there's so much competition. What you called a good project, let's face it, a good project is one that pencils. Yes, that's right. essentially what it is. If it pencils and it's financeable, it's a good project. <laughs> yeah. If we can lower the bar to make it pencil by not having that value grab upstream, that's where I was going. Now, suddenly, we can build a lot more. Developers have opportunities to find projects that didn't work under the old model, but will work under this model. And that's really the key. You've been developed. How long have you been developing yourself? It's been eight or nine years. And in those eight or nine years, how many projects have you taken from NTP to construction? To COD. Very small percentage. Very small. Same with me. I built hundreds of megawatt. I got like 30 megawatt. You know, like less than 10%. Well, that's changing. And that's exciting. That is exciting. It's exciting for me. Yeah, definitely. As a developer. And I think we're all excited. It may be a product that I designed, but it's a product that took an entire team to get to market that is enabling all of us to now do what we couldn't have done in the past. So what I really would like to see all the developers reach out to us, challenge us. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and say, oh, Jim won't talk to me. We'll talk to you. I want to help you go from that small developer to being that medium-sized developer. And then when you come to big developer, you're probably going to say, hey, Jim, it was great. Thanks. (laughs) Don't need you anymore. But in the interim, I want to help as many small developers become medium-sized developers. I want to see as many EPC companies become Long-term owners. The real value in this industry right now is these EPC companies. They've been building for other people and worrying about how they're going to get paid. Well, hell, build for yourself and pay yourself, right? Wow. 
this is a story of improving entrepreneurship, empowering entrepreneurs. It's fantastic. It's going to be great for the U.S. economy at large. In a prior life, I used to teach macroeconomics. We would always teach that there's three things that the engine for the economy is land, labor, and capital, but it's land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship now. And so everything we're talking about is fueling that entrepreneurial spirit and that entrepreneurial challenge. So it's fantastic. Yeah. And you know what this actually makes me think about is like we're seeing in the solar industry a lot of consolidation, a lot of developers being bought. And if they own assets, they're basically bought as a platform. Oh, let me talk about that for a moment. (laughs) Oh, you just hit on a hot topic. I have one of my companies that is in that exact position. Now, we look at some of our competitors and we're looking at the possibility of bringing in equity and, you know, taking an equity partner in. Well, valuations. What we've learned is by having assets on the books, the valuations are a multiple of if you have a great pipeline, but nothing on the books, it's discounted so heavily. If you have assets on the books and a pipeline, that is gold to these aggregators. Now, I don't think you need them anymore because I can give you the capital. But the fact is that having been in that golden position, that's really where you want to be. That's where you're getting value that you create. And I feel like your financing's enabling them if they wanted to do that, get to that point. It's the empowerment, which I think a lot of developers feel like they haven't had the opportunity. You can, we're all so, frustrated. We're all tired of being taken yeah. advantage of. There's not a developer I speak to that isn't frustrated that even when they sell their projects at NTP, the impositions that they have to go through just to transact at that point, they enter into LOIs to sell, thinking, oh, we're good. <laughs> you know, I just made myself $2 million. By the time they get to the closing, they find out, oh, I got $630,000. Well, what happened? You know, we fought over the assumed production ratio. We did a capacity test and we underrated. We used a higher degradation factor. I mean, you could go on and on and on with all the different games that the aggregators play to try and get your price down. You know, you sign a contract and it has all these provisions. Say, oh, look, if, if the ITC changes, you're, you know, what you get paid changes. Like there's eight, nine, ten different adjustments to your pricing. There's tables in the back of these charts that... You never know what you're going to get paid. When you're in charge, what happens is they assume the lowest because they're lender. So they have to assume the low numbers and then they have to convince you that they're lenders. They have to go with these low numbers. So they have to pay you less because it's only value. They lend value it is valued less. Well, when you don't discount and use unrealistic degradation, you know, you go on and on and on. When you get rid of all that nonsense and you actually own it, you're coming to us. We're fine. So we're not your equity part. We're not trying to pay the least amount we can after we sign the LOI. We've all been there. We've all played this game. There's no developer that hasn't been in a position where they sign an LOI. They think that they have a deal. And as the diligence period goes on, as that exclusivity continues, the deal gets worse and worse and worse to the point now where they can't go out and find another owner because they have deadlines in order to have it built to meet their PPA requirements, meet their incentive requirements, meet obligations under the PPA contracts. Suddenly, they have to accept that 630000 and they walk away all ticked off that the $2 million disappeared. And, you know, it's that bad investor. They stink. They stink. They stink. Well, they all do it. There's not one company out there that isn't playing that game with us. Now, if you're an experienced developer, you're not going to face that as much. But if you're just doing a couple of projects a year or project a year, whoever you go to sell your project to, you're going to be spending more time negotiating and fighting and saying, I don't need any of that nonsense. I now have the capital myself. I can build it out. Now when it's built and it's producing and we know there's no assumptions anymore, we know what this thing is doing. Now I'll sell it. Now instead of saying, well, PV Sys says I'm going to do 1240 and well, KW Analytics reports says, you know, everything's down 13%. So I'm going to take that 1240 and I'm going to knock it down. And by the way, there's, you know, the last three months, weather is bad. So we're going to knock it down more. So I had one company, they did a PV analysis. They had a snow load, assuming the worst snow day of the year is every day during the entire winter. So all of a sudden, my production is down like 7% during the winter. I'm like, what happened? It's an assumption. You know, each engineer, each analyst will make their own assumption. You can get five IEs to all disagree on what your production yield is. So taking it out of the control where the buyers get to control that because they're targeting hurdle rate that they need to get on their return. So anything that changes doesn't affect them. It affects you. You become them. Now, if you assume the worst and everything works, anything better than that is just gravy. That's what needs to happen. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that's a big challenge in the industry with, you know, developers going after high development fees, going to exclusivity, and then being stuck. Yep. If you've not transacted with that counterparty before and you don't have a relationship, you can almost bet that you're not going to get what that LOI said. I mean, you can almost bet on. In fact, I would bet on it. (laughs) It's amazing because you basically saw like issue within the industry and created SolReit to basically address that problem. Address that problem, obviously. From the developer's perspective, which is huge because no one's really looking at it from the developer's perspective. And it only gets done if you're looking at it from the developer's perspective, from the financing that you're offering. So I know you talked a little bit about the projects. Is there like a minimum system size or like portfolio limitations? Because Obviously, there's expenses that you have. Is there like a minimum system size of a portfolio that you would look at? Or So from a megawatt perspective, you've got your community solar, other different types of off-takers might be five megawatts to 20 megawatt deals right in that range, but also including all the community solar, not all of it, but most <laughs> community solar. One of the things that we look at is we're looking to enable developers to grow their business. So if a developer comes to us with a smaller project, but a pipeline that we believe we can assist them in getting to fruition, we're more than happy to look at even a million-dollar loan. We're not going to target. There are other companies that come out there, regional banks, that will give you those one-off loans. We're targeting developers that are going to target at least a $10 million loan within the first 12 months. Mm -hmm. If we see a developer that, because of the model that they have, has potential for a much larger business, but the first 12 months, they may not hit that $10 million, we're lenient. It's really a relationship. As we said, we want to be your partner. And if we think you could be a good partner to us, we're going to want to be a good partner to you. What you'll find is the same brokers that have been out in the industry selling these projects for those developers. You can go on our website and find names of those brokers because they're now brokers that are also offering our product. So they now see what the developers say, yes, you can sell your project and make a $2 million fee at NTP under the contract and get paid when it's built and hopefully get $2 million. Or you can go with the sole REIT model where they'll lend you the money. You can build it. You can sell it at COD fully financed, or you can own it long-term. And instead of making $2 million, you may make 4 or $5 million. Now, what are the impetuses that people will elect to sell it anyway? Is I need the money. I'm developing my next project. I need this $2 million so I can finish developing this next project. Well, I'm going to come to that guy and say, look, I'm going to loan you $10 million project, $2 million fee. It's going to cost $8 million to build. I'm going to loan you the $8 million to build it. I'll loan you half of that. I'll loan you a million bucks so that you can still continue to develop that other project, cover your overhead, give me another project to loan to, and then I can cross-collateralize uh-huh. them. And then you can get a third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And before you know it, you have a portfolio. Then you grow big enough and you say, hey, Spano, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to go do a bond offering or some syndication offering where I now have a $100 million portfolio that I can get refinanced at a lower, at better rates. We're going to enable you to get to the point where you can say you don't need me anymore. That's our goal. And if we can get enough people to get to the point where they don't need us anymore, think about the impact that's going to have on climate change. Oh, for sure. That's huge. Right. And explaining the cross-collateralization, because that's why developers are selling Look, at NCP. So many people, when you own a series of assets and you have these mini-perm loans, one bad period, one inverter that goes out or one array that's out, could pull you under your production yield that's needed in order to hit your debt service coverage ratio and put you in default. Now, interest rates go up or you lose your project. But being able to cross-collateralize and saying, look, if, you know, all these projects, remember, we have low 50% LTVs. So if all these projects are at 50% LTV and I got a project that's got a problem here, I look at all that excess cash flow from these and apply it towards the debt service over here and say, look, we're easily hitting our debt service coverage ratio across the portfolio. I'm not worried about this. I'm not going to foreclose on you. I understand, yeah, it's... Inverters out, the school sued you, and they won't pay you for six months or whatever the case may be. I mean, in my experience, you don't see that really the cross collateralization of the early stage project with the with the existing project, this project exactly. Which is which you know, is there may huge. come a point where once we have a larger portfolio with a customer, where we look further up and refinance as a larger portfolio occurs, and you know we may be in a position to look at that since it's all cross collateralized as well. But you can't get there until. You get enough assets on your books, and you can't get enough assets on your books to get there until you have the capital, and that's what we're providing. We're enabling that to happen. And are you involved in like energy storage or any other technologies? Great question. Great question. Energy storage, as a REIT, 
we can only loan to real estate. The way we structure our mortgages, we can qualify as a readable asset, meaning that more than 75% of our assets are real estate assets. Now, we got the IRS to recognize our mortgages as real estate. So as real estate, they qualify as a REIT. And the reason they do, if, if you remember, there was a private letter ruling for Hannon and Armstrong that said that a solar system is infrastructure. Therefore, it's considered real estate, except for the panels which generate power. Similarly, in other industries, you have anything with infrastructure, but the generating asset or anything that's a business asset is not considered real estate. So panels are not considered real estate. Now, that Hannon Armstrong established that since a panel was more than 25% of the value of the project, it's not a readable asset. What we did is we got the IRS to recognize that as a mortgage and the way we structured it, and that's important, where we are qualified as real estate. Now, when it comes to storage, storage is not infrastructure. It's not a readable asset. But if your revenue from your storage is coming from the PPA, from the solar system, Example, you're reducing demand charges, so you're paying a higher rate on your PPA. Maybe I could give you a four cent rate, but you're paying nine cents because I'm providing battery storage that offsets your demand charges. Now that nine cents is revenue that is considered from the PPA, so it's considered in valuation of the mortgage. So I can issue a mortgage for greater, and in fact, we've done this. We've issued mortgages for greater than the cost to build the project so that we can pick up the cost of a new roof, the cost of a storage system as long as the revenue is coming through that PPA. So our key, the only loans we can make are to infrastructure assets. And by charter, we're eliminated to solar infrastructure assets. So all of our loans are priced and sized strictly on the revenue from the solar asset. What you do with the loan proceeds, whether you have to add to build, we can size our loan based on that revenue. And we're loaning against revenue, very, very simply. So it's essentially like project finance based on the Pure solar. Pure project finance. And then fair market value, then the cost to build, right? That's right. So, And you know, it goes back to project finance. We're a structured project finance partner. We're the best partner you can have. We're the guy that's willing to lend you the money instead of saying that I want to own your company. That's a good point to mention that you're just only taking project-related risk. It's not you know, basically your home or the that's company's right. risk. So that's right. that is pretty interesting to understand. Jim, I appreciate you talking about like your initial projects that you developed in New Jersey and you know what happened and how you created the idea of Soul Reed. Can you just talk about like the New Jersey market, like your perspective? There's been a lot, you know, of changes sure. happening. Most people know we just transitioned from a T-REC transitional renewable energy credit to the SUSI program. And the SUSI program is the successor program. It's an SREC 2 program. And it's fixed, just like the T-REC program, so you have fixed periods. There's different incentive levels for different types of projects. There's adders and tractors for different types of projects. Generally speaking, New Jersey has been a crushing market for years. We just significantly increased the community solar program as part of this new legislation so that we would normally be in our third year of the original 2018 Clean Energy Act. We would be in our third year of a 50 megawatt allotment for community soul. And instead, the new legislation closed the trial period, the third year trial period, and opened up as a full market with, I think there's a total of 450 megawatt worth of solar incentives in New Jersey of these SREC2s. And they're allocated in different allocations for the different markets, residential, utility scale, commercial. And then the incentives are also tied to the type of project. Community solar has one incentive level. A carport has another incentive level. A carport that's providing community solar has another. So, you know, there's different combinations as well. I think that New Jersey right now has everybody and their brother. There's not a property that hasn't been sniffed out and offered made on. I get calls. I just had a call yesterday from a guy that's looking to do 50 megawatt of rooftop in New Jersey. In fact, it's a very successful client of ours that's looking to move into New Jersey and want to do 50 megawatt worth of rooftops. The only way you're going to do that in New Jersey today is if you have a relationship with the large real estate, either the REITs or the large real estate firms that have large real estate holdings to where got a ton of the community solar in New Jersey. He developed a relationship with a large real estate firm. So he was able to submit a bunch of rooftops for all of their real estate 
and obviously gives them a very good deal because of the quantity. So unless you have those type of relationships, you can't just come to New Jersey and say, I'm going to go knocking on doors and get rooftops. It's just not going to happen because that door has been knocked 25 times by the time you <laughs> knock on it. You, know, you have to have the relationships in New Jersey. It's no different than you went back six months ago and tried to get tax equity. If you didn't have a relationship with a tax equity investor and you've not done a deal with them in the past, you weren't going to get tax equity. It's their market at the time. Today, oh my goodness, tax equity people are looking for projects everywhere. Oh, it's pretty interesting how that's changed. Yeah, like not tax equity, but that may change again. That, that's true. It's a fluid market. But you know, that's the other thing that Solreed benefits our customers. We know the markets. Yes. We're working in them. We live in them. Unlike the lender who says, well, I don't, I don't, that's your problem. We <laughs> yeah, say, no, no, basically. we understand the problem. We know how to help you. Definitely. That's key. Like industry-specific knowledge. And then you're focused on lending just for the solar Not industry. Not just industry-specific yeah. knowledge, but market-specific market knowledge within yeah. the industry. That's true. And it's interesting, I'm sure, for you, Mark, like to come to a totally different industry. Obviously, the same principles are being applied. But can you talk about like your perspective of being in the solar industry for a very short time? And you also bring a very fresh perspective. You know, I find when you have very experienced and established people from other industries that are able to actually see things differently than the typical solar person who's been doing it for 10 to 15 years. No, that's fine. And, and that's part of the diversity of our leadership team. The first thing I always ask is what problem are you solving for? And Jim has eloquently laid out the value proposition. It's fantastic. I mean, when I first heard it, I couldn't look away. I <laughs> said, so say that again. The question, what problem are you solving for? That resonates with me. The second thing I looked at it, like anything else, is what's the addressable market, both new build as well as refinancing? I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> Another way to put it is the harvest is ripe. So I see what's going on in Washington as far as policy tailwind. You put all that together and I could throw a few more things in there. That's what I see. I see a lot of growth opportunity. It's fantastic. The industry, it's still early, but, yeah. you know, which is exciting. I mean, I know Jim probably thinks. Jim I, and I were at lunch yeah. recently with someone and we were talking about the evolution of the finance part of the solar industry and where we are now. And then we brought up another renewable sector and we were talking about where their financing is not as mature. It's an evolution on the financing part. You know, if you have a reputation for executing effectively, people are going to want to come back. I'm building the largest microgrid in the state of New Jersey with one of my other companies. And I've never built a cogen plant. It's my first foray into cogen, which I need as base load for the microgrid. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about cogen. I have to bring in other experts. And I'm in the process now of interviewing all these different cogen companies. I have to distinguish which guys really give me the, as opposed to if I had a partner like Solreed in the cogen business that said, hey, Jim, these are the two guys you want to go talk to. Yeah. These two guys, they're the best. For your particular project, I would lean toward that guy. I don't have that right now. Now, fortunately, I have to go out and hire consultants. I have to pay consultants to come and tell me these are the guys that you want to yeah. talk to. I think the overall value proposition that SolRead offers for developers, easy access to capital, eliminated their capital constraint, enable them to become long-term owners. For investors, giving them equity-type returns with debt type risk. The equity guys that were investing in ownership model that are now having their margins squeezed, now look at the sole REIT model and say, look, if I could make the loan to sole REIT, sole REIT loans out and levers up that loan, I can get almost the same return I'm getting on my equity investment because my margin had been squeezed that I'm going to now get in this product, but I don't have the risk. So now I have a completely different portfolio mix. I now have a risk deviated return that's in excess of that asset class. And I have a opportunity to significantly increase my capital investment. You know, we have a lot of ESG investors and impact investors that are out there and they're looking for where can I put my money? Talk to us. They want to see the impacts whole REITs having on the climate. They see the potential that we have to enable that proliferation of solar and that reduction of carbon emissions. So to come to us and say, hey, if I could let you more efficiently take my capital and deploy it out into the markets with the experts that know and know how to underwrite these things. Now, I don't have to take that equity risk. As a lender, I'm still okay. And as an owner, you're still okay. It's a huge difference than the current model to finance solar. I mean, let's face it, the current model to finance solar was based on an equipment leasing foundation. Banks, everybody looked at a solar system as equipment. It's not until we started saying, hey, it's infrastructure. Actually, I shouldn't say we. 
I got to give Hannon Armstrong, did a great job. They put out the money. They got the ruling. They established it. All we did is we came back behind them and said, okay, there's a better way. See, with the Hannon Armstrong way, in order to get over that 75% rule, they have to finance the building and the solar system, the land and the solar system, so that they keep it under 75%. But when you're a solar developer and you're using somebody else's property and you're building a system on there, yeah. it doesn't work. It doesn't work, for <laughs> sure. That's really interesting. And you know what I was thinking when you're talking about ESG investors, emissions, that's where like metrics obviously is going to be a big thing for you going forward. Also diversity too as well. I feel like ESG investors are going to put all these different factors when they're working with the partner. Ultimately, so. they can look at our platform and say, for every dollar they invest That's in solary, after we lever it up, it will reduce X amount of carbon emission. And that's the metric that eventually, there's a lot of variables in there, but we will have an average. And in fact, we should probably spend some time and see if we can yeah. get some stats on that. But impact investors are going to look at, obviously, they want to return on their money. You know, they're not giving their money away. But it's on top of the return on their money, what is the social return that they're getting on their investment? And as well as the type of portfolios like community solar, you know, LMI. You're serving the LMI community, lowering emissions and getting a good return on your money. Oh, my goodness. A lot of good, a lot of good. Well, this has been an amazing podcast. I appreciate the time that you've taken. And I think this is an innovative product that developer community is going to be, you know, really interested in. If our listeners want to learn more about SolarEat, or specifically want to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? On the website is the first soul-reit.com or they can contact me directly at mark, M-A-R-K, at soulreit.com, S-O-L-R-E-I-T.com. Thank you again, Jim and Mark. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited about the company and the future going forward. Glad yeah, to be here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.